0: So I think 20 to 23 are not a new argument, but a recapping of everything. Here's my basis for that. Verse 20 uses elemental, elemental spirits, just as verse 8 did. Verse 20 talks about submitting to reg- regulations, which verse 16 implies. It doesn't use that terminology, but identifies specific diets and days. Same thing in 21 with the three do-nots. They're very, very linked, I think, to the food and drink in verse 16. In verse 22, you see the word human, which is also back in verse 8. In verse 23, uh, you see asceticism, which we also saw in verse 18. And at the very end of 23, you see the flesh, which goes back to verse 11 and talks about what Christ has done with our flesh. Hence the title, a couple of them. Those raised with Christ, that's 3-1, must live fully alive to Christ, so dead to this world, alive to Christ, and Christ alone. Or another angle, we overcome the flesh, the very closing thought of chapter 2, by seeking Christ and things above, that's the beginning of chapter 3, and not by all the things that are talked about in verses 20 21 22 and 23 at the beginning if you feel like man he's talking about the same thing Sunday after Sunday number one I know and number two I still think I need to hear this you need to hear this we still don't have it soaked into us enough so if it feels repetitious today I apologize but don't apologize. Um, I need it. I believe that you need it. And I think God's word repeats here very intentionally. So let's ask the Lord for his help. Lord God, we realize that your word, which you also say Jesus is the word, is the means by which our souls were first saved and it's the means by which we continue to grow, that everything proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And now sanctifies us until our glorification. So we pray what you tell us in James 1, that you will help us right now to put away all the filth and wickedness remaining in us, that we won't allow any sin matters to be clung to, to distract, to interfere, to choke out the way Jesus described it, the life-giving word. And we ask that we will receive what you say with meekness and allow you to plant and water that truth in our hearts so it will bear fruit long after today. Again, Lord, may none of us deceive ourselves by listening, nodding, taking notes, affirming, but then forgetting in a few hours or a few days what you have said here. Please, Lord, help these truths to become a greater reality in each of our lives, that they may display more the glory of Christ in us. We pray in your name. Amen. So, verses 20 to 23, my argument, summarizing and concluding the dangers one more time of everything that was started back in verse 8. Actually, back in 2-4, where it warns us not to be deceived by plausible arguments. So, it starts with an if, which could be a when. In other words, if you're truly born again... If this work has been done in you, uh, then you've died. And remember back in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2, Jesus not only died, was buried, and was raised for us, but by faith, we in him died and were buried and were raised with him. So the pressure or the point here, the push is, you are dead to certain things. And the things that you're focusing on in chapter 2 here are the things that pre-Christ or without Christ would control a human being, but you are not to build your life on these things. You are to find it instead in Christ and not in what you can accomplish. Paul summarizes kind of this whole thing as, again, like he did back in verse 8 when he introduced it, these elemental things. Only, interestingly, here he says, you've died to the elemental spirits of the world. So even though it's true, and we most commonly think we're dead to sin, and Romans 6 establishes that clearly, the Bible also teaches we're dead to other things, and one of those things that Christ died to and that we, because we've died with him, are also to be dead to is the ways of the world, the things of earth, as verse 22 will talk about, the things that perish. Or at the end of verse 23, the flesh. These are things that we are to be dead to. And maybe the best way it's worded is by Paul in another one of his letters in Galatians. Where at the end of the whole thing, and you know Galatians is pressing, we're saved by Christ alone, we're justified by him alone, nothing we add. But he reminds us at the end that the world has been crucified to us and us to the world. Like there is no ongoing connection there Uh, because the world's way of thinking or the human way of thinking will keep you in elementary school. You'll never move to middle school. You'll never move to high school. You'll never go to college. You'll never really experience adulthood. You'll be this tiny child, spiritually speaking, going along because you're feeding on such weak placebos or pablum that isn't really, really making you healthy and maturing you. So there's the if then statement. If you've died to these things, why? As if you're still alive in the world. So this is a tension for us, right? We're bodily still alive on this earth. And we're very visible, tangible, visual people. And so it's very much to in our nature to feel like we're alive here in the world. But the point we're getting from above is that's not where spiritual life is coming from for you, ever. It's coming from above, it's coming from Christ. You shouldn't look to be alive here or you shouldn't look to the things of human thinking to make you spiritually alive because they cannot. We, as followers of Christ, must be alive to Christ. We must be alive to his word. We must be alive to his spirit working in us. We must be alive to his will. We must be alive to the kingdom above, which is coming in chapter 3. Not to human propagations that cannot actually create spiritual life or nurture spiritual life in us. So, now this weaving back and forth. Why then do you submit to its regulations? And three examples. You don't handle these things, you don't taste these things, you don't touch these things. And then an explanation. All of these are referring to things that all perish as they're used. Then back to the original thought. Why do you submit to its regulations according to human precepts or commands or doctrines and teaching? So why are you making rules that people put into place that are supposedly to help Christians know and experience God? but aren't actually coming from his word, aren't actually the way that God gives us life. Garland says here, rules like these only bind the rule keepers even more to this present age. Or if we want to take James' language, James calls the word the law of liberty. So instead of freeing Christians, others will put Christians into some kind of imprisonment out of this sense of they are helping God help his people and when actually they are replacing him. Here's the basic problem, and then we'll hear several other angles at it. To wrongly believe that the harder one is on oneself, the holier one is. Believing that devotion to God is shown more by bodily disciplines than by character transformation. So here come three other definitions uh, to help, hopefully help you grasp this. Sam Storms, asceticism, this strict bodily discipline, is the belief that if you add enough physical negatives, you get a spiritual positive. Michael Horton, asceticism presupposes the error that somehow principles, steps for victory, rules, guidelines... That the preacher or teacher or author or blogger or podcaster has cleverly devised promising spiritual success to those who will simply put them into practice. I.J. Baggert. The regime of ordinances, great wording, will always possess a power of attractiveness to men. But this last line, especially to reformers in a hurry. One more swing at it here, and then a scripture. Allowing or thinking that our performance or our supposed spiritual duties, they become our preoccupation, our measure of spirituality and righteousness, while at the same time, they are unwittingly moving us away from the main and eternal thing, the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. So here's how Paul wrote it to Timothy more personally for him to pass on to the churches where he pastored and oversaw. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. That's somewhat the same concept as the elemental spirits of the world. Okay, things that if you really saw it from God's perspective, just is irreverent and silly, useless, dishonoring to Christ. Rather, so have nothing to do with them. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So there's walk through this life in Christ. Put your focus on him, not on you, not on what humans do, as what will transform you. And then here's the teaching bodily training so there's the asceticism is of some value but godliness the way god measures it the internal working of god in us is of value in every way and here's why it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come so the bodily training versus the godliness don't chase after cheap trinkets Pursue the top prize that is vastly superior. So, the chapter ends, uh, I'm sorry, verses 21 to 22 end 20 to 22, end with a question. They're one big, massive question. Now, there's going to be two ways that God answers this. First of all, a declaration about the truth about these things. So this is, I think, a summary conclusion to everything that chapter 2 has been concerned about. And then... First two verses in chapter 3, God is going to give us commands of what we should be doing rather than the useless things of chapter 2. So, verse 23, all of these things have indeed an appearance, keyword, appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made, keyword, self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value They have no real power in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. We're just talking about what's going on inside of us. So Paul, again, to Timothy in his second letter, expresses some of this same idea. There are people doing things that have an appearance of godliness, but they're actually, because they're not focused on Christ and not on the gospel, are actually denying the power to transform us. They're turning us away from that. So, beware of convincing yourself that behaving more morally is a sign you are righteous if you're not truly addressing heart sins. True spiritual formation isn't taking place simply because it looks better on the outside if the sin inside is not actually being killed. That's why 3 5 opens with the command put to death. Not just fix the exterior, but put to death. Here's what we must remember. The most defiled things are not the things we need to avoid tasting, touching, and handling. The most defiled things are inside of each of us. And they are the greatest corruption, and they are the greatest need, and they require Christ to deal with it. David Garland with three different thoughts. Uh, he had like 10 pages on this concept. So here's a few highlights that were helpful for me. The old taboos put the wild animals of lust and hatred, as two examples, into cages. There they remain, alive and dangerous, a constant threat to their captor. Paul's solution in 3 5 is going to be more drastic. The animals must be killed. Garland, again, these restrictions not only fail to achieve what they advertise, they drive persons even more firmly into the grip of the flesh. And a third time, rigorous self-discipline is hardly up to the task of taming the human will, which chronically resists God's will. The law cannot produce inward motivation, and I would add transformation, that can only be generated by the Spirit. Self-mortification cannot drive out the demons that our sin invites in. So this is what Paul was getting at in Galatians as well. And in chapter 3 he says this, O foolish Galatians, which teachers have bewitched you, tricked you, deceived you, misled you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit? And I'm just going to pause here and remind us that the Spirit is the way that Christ dwells in us. It is also called in Romans 8, he's called the Spirit of Christ. So we think Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, think also Spirit of Christ. Did you not receive the Spirit of Christ? Did you receive the Spirit of Christ by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Well, then why are you now being so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, that's where the life started, are you now being perfected by the flesh or by your works? Ralph Harris expanding on this thought. The Spirit's ongoing work and pleasure is to serve the gift and production of life and righteousness in us and through us. He's not in us simply to accompany us, comfort us, usher us home one day. He's in us as the antidote to this world's deadly disease, of doing life without the one who is life. The gift of God is the perfect and effective grace of Christ, and the Spirit is the grace worker of that life. Try with a couple of illustrations here to unpack this picture a little bit more. It's like doing a DIY renovation of your home where Christ gives you this incredible foundational restructuring, rebuilding, makes the whole thing fantastic, perfect. And then from that point on, you focus entirely on the exterior, and everybody who walks by that house and sees it thinks it looks great. But the inside, it's still rundown, broken, trash, dirty, with all kinds of chaos. But it's inside where we actually are living. Or perhaps, another illustration, realizing you're very sick and then making lots of health changes in your lifestyle. But none of them are really addressing the cause of your sickness. They're things that mask the symptoms. Or, you spend your life focusing on mosquito bites, warts, hangnails, things with your skin. Instead of focusing on the fact that you have brain cancer, bone cancer, lung cancer, cancer, prostate cancer, uterine cancer, breast cancer, bowel cancer, cancer, carcinoma, sarcoma, leukemia, light lymphoma, heart disease, and on and on. So we might just finish this, summarize it, bring it to a close, which is still going to be five minutes. Does the way you are living your Christian life preach the law? or preach the gospel? Would you say that when people look at you, they think following Christ is about keeping rules? Or that they see following Christ is about being made like him? If you believe strong, strict, exterior, self-discipline, and denying yourself the pleasures that God provides for us to enjoy, will in themselves make you a holier person, then I think this section of Colossians tells you you're immature in your way of thinking about holiness. You're actually worldly in your approach to trying to live the Christian life. You're putting far too much weight for holiness on your own weak shoulders. And you're not actually stopping the real and very serious and very powerful indulgence indulgence of your flesh that still is alive in you GC cared our moral needs are too grave to be satisfied by any system of rules which endeavors merely to regulate the old life and control its unruly impulses Ronald Fry Roland Fry man's attempts to sacrifice for himself does not bring him the ultimate freedom he seeks However, because it represents an increasing reliance upon the self, and it is precisely from self-reliance that man must be freed. Indeed, the attempt to work one's salvation, to work one's way into favor, whether it be God's favor or one's own, represents a form of the problem itself rather than its solution. Okay, this is a little longer quote. It's a little bit different. Uh, Some of you might, it might rub you a bit, but just consider... This is from Chad Purd from a book called Upside Down Spirituality. And he says this, first quoting G.K. Chesterton. The more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and order, the chief end aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. In Jesus, we are reborn into a life in which the good things run wild and free. The iron cages of fear and selfishness are demolished, by the hammer of the cross. Love that. If the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Luke 4:18, he came to proclaim liberty to the captives. Let me add one more verse in there. Galatians 5:13, that you have been called to freedom. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. This is the newness of life that Paul wrote about in Romans 6. Christ didn't hop down from heaven to be Moses number two, to shove us back under a life of 10 more commandments or 20 more spiritual principles. He came to say, in me you're free. I'm the end of the law, the completion of the commandments. The fat lady has sung, it's over, done with, finished. There is therefore no condemnation hanging over our heads, no handcuffs on us, no ball and chain of religiosity. We have to drag around to keep us in line. There's now room for the good things to run wild in our lives because we're no longer enslaved to the notion that we have to toe the line to ingratiate ourselves to God. We're free to give our lives away, to lose ourselves in love, to actually forget about ourselves. Life in Christ is life in freedom, for we've already died and been raised again. This liberation takes some getting used to. In fact, it takes a lifetime. So what Paul is going to do, and we're barely going to scratch the surface today of, verses, of chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, mostly just 1 to 2, is now going to turn us and say, don't look inside to conquer your flesh, even though that's where the war is taking place. It's not going to be in you. And don't look around you at the rest of the world for the way to conquer your flesh. Look up where the true source of help and power is. So, we'll barely touch on this, uh, and we'll apply verses 1 to 4 in a broader sense next week as we just look at those freestanding, but I just wanted you to see this week that I think the purest context of chapter 3 verses 1 to 4 is primarily about the spiritual problems delineated in chapter 2, which you don't see if you just keep those chapters separate and you read them on two different days. You don't necessarily see how flowing of thought there is here. So, 220 started with, if you've died, here, 3 1 starts with, if you've been raised with Christ. So, rather than be alive to the world, as 220 insinuated, be alive to God and with God. So, take you back to chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, that beautiful gospel message in there, and tells us that we were buried with him in baptism. And we're raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God and that God has made us alive together with him. Paul unpacks it even more vividly in Ephesians 2. Many of us, this is among our favorite passages in all of scripture because it's the verses that lead up right to by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive, raised us, it goes on to say, with him. And Ephesians tells us even a greater picture, he seated us with him where? In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you can see this tension here of we think of it outside of ourselves and yet he's reminding us in spirit we are already seated in the heavenly places in Christ. And all of this so that Christ could show in the coming ages all of his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. So not only is death to the world important, but life in Christ and in the kingdom of heaven is. In fact, it changes everything, for it gives us a whole new way of dealing with our flesh and our sin that we've never been able to deal with until Christ provided this radical power. So the exhortation is... If you've been raised, if you're a believer, if, you're, if Christ has done this work in you, then seek things that are above. This is a push against verse 22 uh, that talked about things on earth and things that perish. The reminder here is you are not truly any longer of this earth. Though you're here now, you reside here. Your actual citizenship is in heaven, as Paul says in Philippians. Yes, your body is here, but your spirit is is with Christ, there with Him. So don't focus so much on managing everything here. Focus on the spiritual reality. Take the eyes of faith, the eyes of your heart, even though they only see dimly now the glory that's there, and see Christ and see what He's done and see what He's offering you. John MacArthur reminds us that preoccupation with heavenly reality is the hallmark of true spirituality. And then he adds this description about things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So Christ in us, but also Christ at the Father's side, interceding, mediating on our behalf, and offering us incredible fellowship with God. Key distinction, we'll emphasize this more next week. This is not so much seeking above what eternity is going to be like, This is about what's available to us right now from above. All that God wants to give us, James talks about, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Here is this idea of a Father who is waiting for the Son Christ to beckon Him as we're in Him to give gifts that will sanctify and truly transform us. And then that brings us back to where we started at the beginning of verse 3, brings us back to where we started at 2.20. You've died. You're dead here. The basic idea is don't keep digging around in the cemetery while you still have to reside here. Don't keep digging in the cemetery because you won't find anything living there to help you live life. Instead, look beyond it and find the life of Christ. Closing thoughts, quite a number of them. Not all necessarily clearly related to each other. But things that throughout the week struck me at various times in various ways about the truths here. All of the things in the latter part of chapter 2, verses 8 through 23, are really have this in common the person of Christ is depreciated, and the work of Christ is depreciated. Christ is not seen and understood to be fully sufficient for everything so other things become more preeminent and Christ as 118 told us who's to be preeminent in everything is not as preeminent in our lives as he should be here are weaknesses and there's certainly more than these but try to boil them down to some things that we tend not to focus enough on the cross And it's infinite, infinite implications for our lives. We tend not to focus enough on the resurrection and the power it gives us in Christ. Third, we tend not to focus enough on the new eternal kingdom that God has transferred us into. And fourth, most significantly, we tend not to focus enough on Christ himself. And just a few things, and these are primarily for me. Not nearly enough looking at his glories revealed in his word and just listening. Not nearly enough meditating, worshiping him, fellowshipping with him, and just enjoying communion with him. Not enough depending on him and taking everything, everything to him in prayer. Not enough of speaking of him to others and singing to him and about him, and not enough attributing everything to him and seeking him in everything. All of that, whatever color that is, all of those are really just unpacking what Jesus said in John 15, abide in me and I in you, the key to walking, to victorious living and to ultimately overcoming our flesh. Michael Horton, in an article, quoted C.S. Lewis from the Screwtape Letters, which is written as if demons are talking. And so this is C.S. Lewis, first of all. What we want, if men become Christians, picture a demon talking here, what we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis. Or for us, the modern lingo would be conspiracy. Christianity in the new psychology or philosophy. Christianity in the new order. Christianity in faith healing. Christianity in psychic research. Christianity in vegetarianism. Christianity in spelling reform. If, you must be, if they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring maybe we spend more time on this, Satan really plays to this human tendency, tempting us in every way to divert our attention toward these other earthly matters rather than above toward Christ. Anything, he says, anything other than Christ. Horton goes on then to do his own version of this. Today, we see this in terms of, and I appreciate him changing it to Christ. We think Christ in America, Christ in self-esteem, Christ in prosperity, Christ in the Republican or Democratic Party, Christ in end times predictions, Christ in healing, Christ in marketing and church growth, Christ in traditional values, Christ in the anagram. You can go on and on and on until Christ himself becomes little more than an appendage to a religion that can, after all, get on quite well without him. Carl Truman calls this Christless Christianity. Religiously connecting Christ's name to aspects of life, but life itself is actually devoid of him. Our serious error is that we scorn the powerful gospel and the truths of Christ as often too simplistic, only necessary for salvation, not nearly as important for our sanctification and needing additional help that the world might provide. But it cannot be Christianity, and it cannot be Christ plus. If Christ has done so much to begin our salvation, as the first uh, chapter and a half of Colossians describes, then he is equally committed to and sufficient to fully sanctify us. Philippians 1.6 that I don't have on the screen But you know this, he who began a good work in you, he who began a phenomenal, incredible, magnificent, eternal work in you, will himself bring it to completion, ultimately at the day of Jesus Christ. So keep preaching to yourself. I am dead to this world. I am dead to this world. It's been crucified to me. And then multiple times throughout your day, I have been raised with Christ, raised. I am alive in Christ and only in him and only through him. Keep saying to yourself, things above, not things on earth, not things on earth, not things on earth, things above, and the incredible gifts that are offered us there. I'm going to close. This isn't really poetry. I would call it more creative writing. And I realize that particularly men probably don't connect to this kind of thing as much as I do. But uh, this is a sermon in itself. This is from 1859 by a man named James Smith. One great part of the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart is to empty us, strip us of self, lead us to feel our own weakness, and bring us as poor sinners to look to Jesus alone as our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And just in proportion as we feel our need of Christ and realize our absolute nothingness without Christ, Shall we prize him, enjoy him, and exercise dependence upon him? Oh, how little do many of us know our need of Christ, and therefore it is that we make so little use of Christ, enjoy so little of Christ, receive so little from Christ, and do so little for Christ. We come to it first, oh, as poor, lost, helpless sinners, that we may be saved by his merit and mercy. And as believers, we must continually come to him with all our burdens that he may bear them, with all our cares that he may manage them, that all our sorrows that he may sanctify them, with all of our foes that he may conquer them, with all of our sins that he may cleanse them, with all of our needs that he may supply them. All that we need is in Christ, and it is in Christ for us. We must intimate with Christ. We must walk with him. We must carry everything to him. We must seek all we need from him. We must be constantly going to Christ, conversing with Christ, and obtaining from Christ if we would receive the consoling influences of his love. Father, we thank you for this passage of Colossians that spells out so clearly what Christ offers and what little else is of any use to us. God, help us. Help us discern when we're looking to things on earth for our righteousness or for our spiritual life when they only come from you. Help us when we're seeking religious activities to far above that be seeking you. Help us each day when we're walking through a gazillion situations in every one of them to be aware of and thinking about Christ and the cross and the resurrection and the kingdom. Teach us more how to look at and gaze upon and fix our eyes fully on the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray.